Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb, and I'm delighted that once again joining me in the podcast is John Entine, who is Director of the Genetic Literacy Project. Those of you who have listened to previous podcasts may remember that John and I have known each other for a long time, previously collaborating on a magazine I used to run where John used to write great pieces which encouraged debate. So welcome back to the podcast, John. How are you today? Um, great. So glad to be here. Good to see you again. For those who haven't become familiar with the work of the Genetic Literacy Project, what's the elevator pitch? Uh, the focus of it is on science literacy, on challenging misinformation about the innovations in biotechnology, and that includes biomedicine, vaccine development, designer babies, even reinterpretations of human history. But increasingly, biology genetics has focused on innovating in plants and crops. It started in the transgenic GMO movements 25 or so years ago, and now has moved decisively into the gene editing of crops, which opens up a whole new world of both potential and obviously has ushered in some criticisms because this is cutting edge technology. And it's important that we do it transparently and get it right. And our forum is a way to discuss these issues. We push back against misinformation, disinformation, whether it's a corporation trying to oversell or overhype a technology, or it's an anti-technology environmental activist group, which are really rejectionists in some degree. So you've had to become pretty thick-skinned in the last 20 years or so, John, particularly I'd say in the last 10 or 15. There's quite a lot of misinformation or disinformation about you on the internet. So just to clarify, where does GLP get its funding from? We were founded 10 years ago now through funds from foundations, the Templeton Foundation, which up until last year remained a funder, and they come back on board this year, and the Cyril Foundation. Over the years, I'd say about 98% of our funding has come from foundations or independent individuals. We've gotten some grants here and there from some companies. We've remained extremely independent. We're very transparent. We post all of our, what we call in the US, our 990s, our federal disclosure statements, on our website. And we are very independent and known around the world for our independence. And a number of media groups have rated us in our credibility, NewsGuard for one, Media Bias Fact Check for another, and we get the highest ratings for transparency and fairness and neutrality in our coverage. So there's no evidence you're a puppet of Monsanto or any other large agrochemical company. I say that slightly facetiously. Well, I am expecting a gold bullion delivery later this afternoon, but I'll I'll secretly share it with you when it comes in. Other than that, uh, no, I'm not. Don't say that, John. These things get taken, everything gets taken out of context these days. Uh, There's no room for satire or wry comments on media anymore. Let's take it as a given through John's exemplary transparency that (laughs) there is no funding that isn't declared about GLP. And I admire that about the organization that you have a pro-technology approach but you're open to discussion about them. I mean, there are those that say GLP is so gung-ho for GMOs that that kind of slightly blinkers you to downsides of them. Just briefly, what do you say when you hear that? Well, in fact, one of the organizations that rated us, the News Media Guard, took up that in their analysis. They just cited page after page in which we sharply criticized Monsanto or other companies for their missteps, ethical and scientific, in the area of biotechnology development or pesticide development. For instance, we did a very harsh five-part series dismembering Monsanto for its dicamba disaster, introducing of an herbicide that had not been well-tested and pushed it into the marketplace prematurely. The nature of it is we do believe, I believe, the technology on balance 
offers more good than bad, but I'm a journalist and nothing comes without a bumpy road and you need to have pushback. So we run critiques of the technology, not only written by us, but by written by the sharpest critics. There's one critic, USRTK, which has been viciously critical, has a horrible profile of the GLP. And we probably run over 50 articles by USRTK critical of us and the technologies that they oppose. I don't know how to do anything more than transparently air what your critics say, as long as it's fact-based. It's, if it's a, a personal attack, we're not going to run it. But we want to debate. And we think like issues of GM technology versus organics, it doesn't have to be a verse. It should be a, a complementary technologies that can enhance each other. And that's the debate that we're trying to have. How do you elevate this from he, she, us against them into something where there's a dynamic collaboration? And we only do that by challenging misinformation and disinformation. And in previous podcasts, listeners, John and I have talked about the complexity of understanding what technology actually means. I do like the example we discussed in a previous podcast of the organic grapefruit and where that came from. Not quite as natural as you might imagine. I will link to previous podcasts uh, so you can listen to that piece, listeners. We won't go into it here. So, John, we haven't spoken for six, eight months or so. We were going to do it more regularly, but life got in the way. What are some of the trends you've seen since our last podcast around use of gene editing, use of technology in agriculture? The most dramatic trend, I would say, is that gene editing, which is cisgenic, it doesn't involve the moving of genes from one organism to another, has been getting broader acceptance, both in the public sphere and in the regulatory sphere. Unlike transgenics, GMOs, which again, genes are moved from one species to another, that came under criticism, I think unfair and unscientific criticism based on the idea that once you move genes from one species to another, you're creating a, a whole set of problems and challenging nature with a capital N. Again, I don't think that's scientifically based, but nonetheless, cisgenics avoids that. And there's been a lot of push for introducing cisgenic, gene-edited CRISPR and other forms of crops. And there's been a huge breakthrough in terms of the regulatory structure over the past year or so, with China leading the way. China has historically been quite cautious on the area of transgenics. They do import a tremendous amount of GMO grain from South America and the United States, and always have, soybeans especially. But they have been loath to develop it there, and there's a very underground popular resistance against it, similar to what you find in Western countries, mostly fanned by the internet. But they've moved rather decisively in the past six months to a year and accelerated that in 2022, uh, indicating that they're barreling ahead in regulatory reform, in uh, introducing gene editing crops. They've announced a number of crops that they're working on. Japan has done the same thing and opened that door up. We see in Africa, which has had problems in approving transgenic crops, both Nigeria and Kenya now have frameworks for approving gene editing. And we see cracks in the EU. Switzerland has recently indicated that it is open to revising its policies on approval of gene editing as early as 2024. And of course, Brexit has wildly changed the equation in the UK, which is, I think, going to become a world leader in gene editing technology in agriculture. It really has decisively broken from what I would call the anti-technology, anti-agricultural technology model embraced by the European Union. So that's the most encouraging sign on the regulatory front. Yeah, some interesting trends taking place. You mentioned when we were talking before the call about both 
Kenya and Nigeria taking steps around improving guidelines for genetic engineering. What does that actually mean? There has been a few crops, transgenic crops approved in, in Kenya and Nigeria. So they have already broken through the anti-GMO firewall, which environmental groups had tried to set up in Africa, which is really interesting because the criticism of GM technology in Africa is that it's Western colonialism coming in to take over their crops. The reality of it is, is that almost all African innovation in the GM space and in the gene editing space is homegrown and it's controlled to a large degree by the government. So it's the opposite of colonialism. What's the colonial part of it is that the anti-GMO groups are infected by European environmental activists, and they have become the colonial groups trying to impose a pro-organic anti-technology ideology on Africa. So what this really means is that with the United States, Canada, most of Latin America, Japan, Israel, and now the UK, uh, along with other countries, South Africa, embracing gene editing innovation, it really means that Africa is going to be setting its own path forward. And I think that that's going to increase. And frankly, it has uh, environmental groups terrified, and they've launched some subterfuge attacks to try to undermine what they see as, in their minds, a dangerous trend. Now, last time we spoke, we did discuss why gene editing hasn't quite taken off in the way that we had spoken about several years ago. Has that changed since we last spoke? And I think that must have been about nine months ago. Yeah. Again, the issue is the legacy of the anti-GMO activists and the very ambiguous guidelines that were frankly designed in the pre-GMO era. We're talking the United States, the guidelines regulating GMOs came out in the 1980s. So it didn't anticipate many of the innovations that GMO technology has introduced and yet that is the archaic legislation in the United States, echoed in many other countries, that is used to regulate gene editing. It's not a quick and easy path to come up with new regulations, which is what you really do need to do to separate yourself from that kind of anti-technology past. So we are seeing progress in the regulatory spheres. In terms of new products, there have been a few new products that have been introduced most of them fairly benign. A tomato has been introduced in Japan, for instance, to, to wide acceptance. There's been a few flowers that have been introduced. There will be more and more. I don't want to promise the floodgates that's been promised before. It's all about regulatory structure. It's all about pushing back against anti-GMOs. And you see their panic on this. Probably the biggest innovation in the biotechnology space, which affects agriculture and health, is in what are called gene drives. Gene drives are ways to drive out deleterious characteristics, traits in pests. So we can design mosquitoes that don't carry the diseases like Zika and dengue, malaria, and they literally drive through a population and make them sterile. So the disease carrying mosquitoes die off. We can do it in islands in the Pacific, where they have technology that can stop non-indigenous pests that were brought over by shippers, sometimes a century or more, that have taken over, you know, rat-infested, beautiful, pristine islands. And there's no way to kill them other than to using very heavy-duty agriculture, harmful chemicals to do this. And so you have the environmentalists siding with the people who want to use the harmful chemicals. And then you have the old line environmentalists and the new technology focused environmentalists who say, no, we can use gene drives and we don't have to use the chemical technologies, which are clearly harmful. And so you get this odd reversal of, of who's really protecting the environment. 
But the anti-biotech forces see the debate over gene drives as a way to conflate the confusion over gene editing and GMOs because a lot of the gene drives are gene edited. So to them, this is a bula base of misinformation. So sometimes when you're seeing criticism now by anti-GMO groups, what they're doing is they're throwing in concepts like unintended consequences and butterfly effect. And they're talking about gene editing, exaggerating the potential dangers, because we do have technologies developed that are what are called stop switches that stop the gene drives from going forward if there's a problem. But they're trying to confuse the issue. And so you're seeing that being injected into debates in Europe, and particularly injected into debates in the developing world, whether it's the island Pacific or in Africa or or Asia. Equally, have gene editing proponents overly promoted the possibilities of the technology? I think last time we spoke, we discussed the fact that it's not just regulatory environments holding it back. That in some cases, it just hasn't worked quite as well as we might have thought. And that's understandable, I suppose, given this is a fairly early stage technology. Not every application of it is going to be successful. Sure, I think you're right. There's a few things in play here. One, it's a new technology. It is more precise than transgenic technology. It's easier to test and evaluate. And the key is much less expensive to test and evaluate. I don't see those issues as insurmountable. A lot of that comes down to how much risk are we willing to have in our system? You mentioned, referenced early on, the idea of the grapefruit, the rosy red sweet grapefruits, which people buy at their organic stores, which was created by gamma rays. took seven, eight, nine years of us shooting gamma rays at seeds until a beneficial mutation appeared, and then they rolled it out ultimately into a ruby red grapefruit and about 2,000 other crops. That's very erratic, and you're creating literally thousands and thousands, in some cases over 100,000 random mutations. The beauty of gene editing, and to some degree GMOs, is that you can control the amount of problems, uh, potential problems, and you can monitor them. doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but you see consequences in normal breeding, and you certainly see the mutagenesis. So it's all risk-reward thing. If you want to hype on the risks, they're there. If you want to recognize that risks is part of what breeding has always been about, then I think we're going to see some progress in this. But I think the other Achilles heel to the use of gene editing and farming is the best use of gene editing and farming is combined with transgenics. It's not separate from. Somehow people think that you can do everything that you can do in gene editing that you've been able to do in transgenics, and that's not possible. Sometimes you need to move traits from one plant to another to create traits that will be beneficial. You can do certain things, but they are limited. And the best of all possible worlds would be a place where we have a license to operate and combine those two technologies. So I think that as long as the pro-gene editing faction is willing to throw GMOs under the bus to try to get gene editing approved, the more problems they're setting themselves up for in the future when those technologies need to be combined to be most effective. And is that partly because gene editing is more about taking away traits than adding them? And transgenics is is the additional side. I know that's a very simplistic way of describing it. Is that in any way correct? It's somewhat correct. Yes, it's easier to remove traits, but part of gene editing is actually moving a trait from a different place on the genome. So it's not just removing it, it is adding it as well. And by adding it to a different place, you actually can add traits. It might be a trait that might not be as activated as aggressively on another part of the plant for some evolutionary reason. So it's Somewhat true, but I wouldn't say 100% true. Well, let's turn to the sad current events of the war in Ukraine. 
We've seen numerous media articles looking at the potential for food shortages later in the year, the disaster for grain prices and wheat, particularly if the Ukrainian farmers can't do their planting in the next month or two, which frankly it doesn't look like many of them will be able to do safely. So assuming this horrific conflict drags on longer, we are going to see some serious ramifications for food supply. What are some of the nuances that you're seeing here, John, and how do you think this is going to play out? It is both momentous and a little frightening. Ukraine is a breadbasket in the world, as is parts of Russia, along with the United States and South America. It is the leading supplier of grain to many places in Europe and in Africa as well. A lot of the grain is for animal feed, not just for humans. So there's an extra added dimension. There is, a, as you know, historically, an anti-GMO sensibility that exists in Europe and in parts of Africa. In terms of accepting grain, the Europe actually accepts a lot of U.S. and South American grain that is GMO. They do it under the radar, but actually more GMO grain, I think, gets bought in Europe than any region in the world. But again, it's not used in the food supply. It's used indirectly in the animal supply, which obviously creates the dairy products and the meat products. So there is a crisis already happening right now. You see it in Africa, especially there is a push to open up their markets to GMO grain. And the only thing stopping it is these outdated, hysterical, fear-based regulations from 20 and 30 years ago that ban this. And yet there's been petitions in a lot of these countries to open themselves up to GM grain, which would dramatically relieve some of the pressures in parts of Europe and also in parts of the rest of the world. The other major area is what do we do about Europe's farm policy going forward. This is a very critical juncture in European history, a very important time when Europe is deciding how it wants to shape its agricultural and food future. We have the Green Deal, which is a very important piece of legislation, and we have the farm to fork policy, which is both important and controversial. And you know, as well as I know, that these issues are now on the table. The headline target under Farm to Fork is obviously this 25% of EU agriculture under organic. And the first thing I thought about with the looming food shortages, if they happen, and it looks like they will, is will that target be affected? But there are other elements as well. You know, there's a broad range of issues. First of all, again, let me raise a flag in support of debating these issues and trying to figure out what's a sustainable policy. The debate as it's played out in Europe has not been fact-based. It's not been science-based. It's been ideologically driven. So for instance, in the Green Deal, some of the major factors are a sharp cutback on synthetic chemicals, but an increase in natural chemicals. When from a scientific point of view, any scientist, even agroecological supporting scientists will tell you that we should be regulating based on toxicity and effectiveness, not based on whether something is natural. And we've talked about this, copper sulfate, for instance, is the leading chemical being used in Europe right now. It's a natural chemical. It's very key to the wine industry and to weed and other things as well, but it's one of the more dangerous chemicals. And if the EFSA had its way, they would be restricting it a lot more, but the organic lobby has pushed back against it. So that's an artifice that exists in the legislation. Another one is the idea is to reduce land availability of agriculture by 10 to 20%. Now, Europe already imports, even though it's a breadbasket, a lot of its food, mostly from South America, and we already know that there's a relationship between the decrease in the rainforest in South America and exports to Europe. It's been documented. So essentially, that's an endorsement to some degree, a scandalous endorsement of clear-cutting of forests in South America. You can't get from here to there by cutting land. 
what we proponents of a different kind of structure talk about something called intensification of agriculture. In other words, we need to increase the output on the land we have available, which is another issue where the farm to fork policy seems to have failed. One, it's recommending a dramatic increase in organic agroecological farming by 25%. And this comes on the heels of a number of independent studies. There's probably been six, I would say, over the past two years that shows that organic agriculture's yield lag ranges from 20 to 45%. In other words, here at the time that you're going to be cutting the amount of land available, you're also going to be cutting the yield on the land that will be transferred from conventional farming, non-GM farming for sure, to organic farming, which is a potentially a great disaster. And in fact, a recent study by the USDA, and this is Obama's liberal USDA, said they thought food prices could go up as high as 89% if the farm to fork policy went into effect because of the impact of the lower yields and the impact of the cutback in a lack of intensification. And then of course, there's the global warming argument, which we could address as well, which is part of this whole picture, which is being stirred by the war because of the change in the energy structure. We really have to rethink global warming And the fact is, is that organic farming is disastrous for global warming because of the low yields, relatively low yields. And that's partly caused by need to till more in organic farming. And when you till, you release carbon into the atmosphere. When you use genetically modified crops, potentially gene edited crops, you don't have to till the soil, you don't release carbon. There's probably no bigger contributor to global warming in the agricultural sector than two things. One, the tilling release and two, methane gas burps from cows, which are necessary to fertilizer for organic farmings. So this bula base of like, suddenly in the real world, we don't live in this picture perfect world where we can happily go down the trail to agroecology. We live in a real world where there's costs and trade-offs. And suddenly the war has put the costs and benefits and the trade-offs on the front burner in discussions by European diplomats and by the environmental community as well, which is opening their eyes fairly dramatically. So if you had to look into a crystal ball, because it looks pretty obvious that these food price rises of some sort are going to kick in, it looks like there's going to be some impacts on harvests, either because of Ukraine or just because of drought in southern Europe this winter. I'm here in southern Portugal. There's been virtually no rain until March. It's a disaster for Portuguese agriculture. I just had an email yesterday from a wine producer in Barolo in Piedmont saying they've had no rain since December. There are problems notwithstanding the war in Ukraine around production looming later this year. If you look into your crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen in terms of changing these policies that you just referred to? I think it's going to be an evolutionary process and it's going to have to see how the war plays out. But I think it's intimately tied to the energy debate as well. What's happened with some really short-sighted policies by Europe, especially in Germany, and tying itself to the Russian energy infrastructure, which included dirty gas, because they have really poor quality gas, but also coal. At the same time, they shut down their nuclear energy and natural gas capacities in Germany. Now they're having to open that up. Germany is hastily negotiating natural gas from the Middle East right now in large tanker trucks. And they really took a very short-sighted pass that wasn't based on what was a medium-range strategy for challenging carbon gas releases. They went to an overnight strategy, which even the most minor disruption would have upended. And now we have a stupendous interruption that's going to, I think, roll out over a decade or more. So this isn't something that 
six months from now, if this Ukrainian war settles down and there's some kind of armistice, that we're suddenly out of the problem. We've now created a decade-long problem, and it's changed all the chess pieces. They've all been moved around now. And what it means is we're going to have to make cost-benefit decisions. We had the luxury of not making cost-benefit decisions in energy and not making it in agriculture. Once that changes, everything changes. Macron in France, which has been one of the most aggressive supporters of the Green New Deal, is now talking about putting certain aspects of gene editing and a change in how we go forward in agriculture on the table. There's a real sense that some of the goals of farm to fork are not realistic. And I think that kind of pragmatism, you know, nothing shakes you up and makes life seem real than having colleagues die. And that's what we face right now. Yeah, what's interesting is also the rise in fertilizer prices as well. I mean, that's surely going to make an impact here. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess the organic proponents and others will say that fossil fuel inputs costs will go up. Therefore, inputs involving non-fossil fuel inputs or non-fossil fuel materials will be advantageous. But I guess it's a scale issue, isn't it, really, there? Yeah, I mean, listen, would we all want to have a world where all the energy is renewable? Of course we would. It's not an aspirational thing. It's a functional thing. What can we do in this real world? And with supply chains disrupted, the daisy path to green energy is now littered with bombing shells. We have to reevaluate considering the way the war has literally exploded the landscape in agriculture, energy, and frankly, in a wide range of other aspects of the world. Yeah, your point about everything has changed and it will take us 10 years to see through the ramifications of this is a very important one. I've not seen much analysis about that. I guess it's too early to tell, but it seems very obvious that that could be the case in the sense that we haven't had this kind of conflict and this kind of near-shoring or near-production supply chain disruption in the same way, whether notwithstanding in recent years. So it's going to be interesting to see if the level of analysis improves over what these ramifications will be. Yeah, I think it will play out over time. There is a real sense of the unknown right now. Things could get dramatically worse, and, and the spring season is absolutely critical all through Eastern Europe. And frankly, in Russia as well, we could find, because of boycotts, economic boycotts, some of the production is also scaling down in Russia. And Russia is a big exporter of grain throughout the world. If that grain is being boycotted, if they don't have the energy supplies to exploit their natural resources, this will impact the entire world, not just prices, but actual food on the ground if prices weren't even an issue. We could see severe cases of malnutrition hunger in places in Asia and Africa that we haven't seen since 2008. Yes, the food price rises then were at the time, I remember, based on speculators. But then subsequent analysis showed that really wasn't the case. There were far more systemic reasons why those shortages kicked in. And we know what impact they had. I mean, in some cases, quite seismic politically. So it's important that we think hard about the implications of all this for the global politics, really, in the next six months or so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thanks so much for your time today. We could keep talking all day. And you and I love doing a long podcast. So let's make sure we don't leave it another nine months before we speak. Let's try and do this in a couple of months' time and see where we're at. Because this is a key time, as you say, in, in human history and nutrition, right? From a supply point of view, from a technology point of view. And let's try and have another conversation about this in the near future. Yes, thank you. The sliver of good news is that during crises, you have an opportunity to actually rethink and change direction. I hope we use this well. Yes, and let's hope the politicians and others who set incentives see things the same way. John Entine, thanks so much for your time, as always. Thank you. Bye-bye.